Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast, where I look forward to sharing with you a conversation with Todd Endelman and Svia Gittleman, who are the co-editors of the Posen Library of Jewish Culture and Civilizations, Volume 8, Crisis and Creativity Between World Wars, 1918-1939. to Todd M. Endelman is Professor Emeritus of History and Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. He was educated at the University of California, Berkeley, and Harvard University. He's the author of many books, most recently, Leaving the Jewish Fold, Conversion and Radical Assimilation in Modern Jewish History, which came out in 2015, and which was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Prize. Tzvi Gittleman is Professor Emeritus of Political Science and Preston R. Tisch Professor Emeritus of Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. He has written or edited 18 books, the most recent of which is the edited volume, The New Jewish Diaspora, Russian-Speaking Immigrants in the United States, Israel, and Germany, which came out from Rutgers in 2016. Professors Endelman and Gittleman, thank you so much for joining us. Well, to be here. I would like to uh, begin the conversation among the three of us by laying out the broad uh message or arc of the story between the world wars that you lay out in your introduction to volume eight of the Posen Library. The picture you're painting is one of tremendous hardship and uh, particular challenges in Eastern Europe and particular burgeoning opportunities in the new world. Can you each uh, give us your take on that big uh, canvas on which we're going to discuss some of the finer details of the Jewish experience in the interwar period. This is Todd. I'd, I'd be happy to start. I think you've got the essence of our argument there, that it's a tendency in Jewish history to go back and look at it as a, a terrible narrative of uh, suffering, uh, discrimination, persecution. And what we try to emphasize is that it's neither necessarily good nor bad, uh, that it was a very mixed picture. For example, economic prosperity was not the lot of most Jews in the United States or in other Western countries in the interwar years. Nonetheless, there was some social mobility. Uh, and the kind of persecution that Jews faced in Poland where continuing impoverishment was the record. That wasn't the case. So different parts of the Jewish world were experiencing different things. But what's more important is to understand is that even in a period uh, that can be seen as rather bleak and dark in terms of uh, legal status, uh, active persecution, uh, physical threats, even in this kind of world, Jews continue to be creative. Svi and I have both argued that uh, Jews were produced more in terms of creative uh, literature, philosophical and religious tracts, political speculation in this period probably than any other period. This period is extraordinarily rich, despite the physical threat. 
So the question is, what's the what's the relationship then between physical threat, persecution, uh, a rather disastrous political situation, and creativity? And I don't want to paint too rosy a picture, but simply see that the connection might be that extreme situations or increasingly extreme situations force Jews to think aloud, that is to write, to try to mobilize, to try to activate themselves because they need to find solutions. And extreme situations produce extreme reactions, creative, etc. We have a tendency to look at this interwar period through the prism of what happened immediately after, namely World War II and the Holocaust or Shoah. It's very difficult to avert one's gaze from that prism. Obviously, the people living at that period, with some exceptions, did not foresee what would happen between 1939 and 1945. And yet, as the Shoah approached, some felt a sense not only of persecution and difficulty, but of impending catastrophe. However, as Todd just pointed out, the perspectives varied by country. And I would add, not only by country, but within countries according to social class, religious persuasion, and even according to changes in regime. I would say that in the 1920s, the Jews of the Soviet Union, who numbered about two and a half million at that point, experienced more accessibility to education and vocational opportunities in the 1920s than did their American counterparts. So in 1927, for example, 13% of all students in Soviet institutions of higher education were Jews, even though Jews were less than 2% of the Soviet population. This is at a time when numerous universities, professional schools, and industries such as banking, engineering, the law, excluded Jews or limited the numbers of Jews in the democratic country of the United States of America. A decade later, by 1937, the Soviet regime had changed so that Jewish secular Yiddish-based culture, which had been promoted by that regime in the 20s, was obliterated more or less by the late 1930s. So for the Jews of Poland as well, between 1926 and 1935, there was one regime after 1935 and President Piłsudski's death, there was a very different regime. Things changed radically in this very dynamic short 20 years. If you look at our volume compared to other volumes, we cover a much shorter period of time, 20 years as opposed to centuries. And yet uh, we took, uh, what was it, 1,380 pages to do so because it is a period of both crisis and creativity. 
I would uh, like now to break down with you some of the themes which which have just emerged in this opening uh, statement, so to speak, that we've just done the rounds on among the three of us. We made allusion, Svi, you did, to the fact that th- there's an anachronistic tendency we have to cast the pall of World War II and the Holocaust backwards onto the period under discussion and in your volume and how that can distort our understanding. Nevertheless, it is also true that this book between 1918 and 1939 does cover the very, very early stages of um, mid-century European uh, fascism and Nazism. So uh, I'd like to ask you, Todd, to help us appreciate why we shouldn't uh, retroject the Holocaust onto this period, but at the same time, appreciate Jewish reactions to what ended up in fact being the rise of Nazism. Well, I think the important thing to remember is that you can't task anyone in the past with knowledge of something that they couldn't have had. But that said, the reactions of Jews uh, across the world that we're dealing with, this is both Eastern Europe, Western Europe, Central Europe, the United States, uh, was remarkably different. And very frequently, uh, what determined the reaction to Nazism was their past statement, their past political orientation. So that uh, very frequently, um, those who were committed to what I would call an assimilationist stance, that is a belief that as Jews made themselves more like the surrounding population, they would be accepted. But as many of these people, 1933 meant now we have to be even on better behavior. Now we have to conform even more. Now we have to rock the boat even less. Uh, and this was true in Europe, in Western Europe, uh, to some extent, even in Germany after 1933, where German Jews, you know, were quite happy to proclaim their, uh, their patriotism. Uh, they made, they weren't necessarily swearing allegiance to Hitler, but uh, all the Jews who had served in the First World War in Germany, which were a considerable number, began to wear their medals. In the United States, uh, there was no immediate perception that this was going to end in a Holocaust. That would have been impossible. We have to remember to think that. I'll give you an example of the tendency not to realize the dangerous times. Um, After the Nazis came to power, the Orthodox Rabbinical Seminary, not a yeshiva, but an Orthodox Rabbinical Seminary in Berlin, uh, had to make the decision as to whether they would transfer themselves to uh, Jerusalem. Now, you would have thought that would have been the easy solution. But because most of the people associated with this Orthodox camp were anti-Zionist, there were real problems to doing it. And they didn't take that step. And as a consequence, uh, you know, they were, many of them were unable eventually to escape. Their prior assumptions about the world, in this sense, prevented them from grasping that they were uh, in new territory, that the old rules did no longer apply. In general, the more one accepted the fact that uh, Jews were a scorned minority, that there was no place for them in the world, 
the more that such individuals would have seen the Nazi threat coming earlier. Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. I want to launch into the next question by simply quoting as, uh, as a centerpiece for the conversation, even if we don't talk about it, a quote that you include in the volume from Mordechai Kaplan, um, in which he says the following from his uh, tract toward a reconstruction of Judaism, which came out in 1927. He writes, for the first time in its career, Judaism is challenged by the Jew more vigorously even than by the Gentile. And I want to pose a question in this regard to Tzvi, uh, specifically about the language battles uh, among uh, Zionists and non-Zionists and Jews of all stripes with respect to the primacy of Hebrew and Yiddish or versus Yiddish and uh, the motivations uh, behind each camp for each language as just a locus for understanding this uh, dynamic period of Jewish uh, redefinition. Sveet? This issue arises long before the interwar period. The Jewish attitude toward Yiddish was negative in both Western and Eastern Europe. In Western Europe, the German Jews, the Yekis, looked down their Semitic noses upon Yiddish as a bastard dialect of proper German. In Eastern Europe, the language was referred to by Jews as Jargon and not as Yiddish. With the emergence of modern literatures, period of the Haskalah, which began a bit later in Eastern Europe than it did in Western Europe, both Hebrew and Yiddish become systematized. Grammars are developed, dictionaries are published, and belletre are written and published. It's interesting that of the three great classics of Yiddish literature, beginning with Mendel Mechasforim, and then Sholem Aleichem, and Yud Lamet Peretz, Mendel and Peretz wrote in both languages. The idea of bilingualism is, of course, strange to Americans, but it was rather widespread. However, the languages began to rival each other because they had become politicized. Hebrew became associated with the Zionist movement, and Yiddish mainly with the Bund, which was a Jewish social democratic movement, a very powerful one, anti-communist, 
but also anti-Zionist, anti-clerical, if not anti-religious. And Yiddish became one of its fundamental platforms. So that the two languages became, in a sense, rivals. What will be the language of the Jewish people? at a time when romantic nationalism was sweeping the world and language was a very important component of any nation's identity. So, what do Jews do when they have such a decision to make? They call a conference. And they called a conference in 1908, which took place in the then Austro-Hungarian city of Chernovitz, today Chernivtsi in West Ukraine, to decide the issue. And they left the conference with those who were pledged to Yiddish still pledged to Yiddish, and those pledged to Hebrew still pledged to Hebrew. So that rivalry continued, and as I say, it became politicized with Hebrew associated with the Zionists, though there were some Yiddish advocates among the Zionists, and uh, Yiddish among the secularists. That also led to the establishment of separate school systems in Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, and other countries. In the Soviet Union, however, ex-Bundists who had become communists persuaded the Soviet Commissar of Enlightenment or Education, Anatoly Lunacharsky, that Hebrew was the language of the class enemies the language used by the haute bourgeoisie, which wanted to show off, just as some people would use French or Latin to show their education, the language used by the clerical class, rabbis, chazonim, sheikhtim, and so on, whereas Yiddish was the language of the horepashne masen, of the toiling masses, of the ordinary worker. Therefore, Hebrew became the only language that I know of that could not be taught or studied in the Soviet Union. This was at the urging of Yiddishist, former Bundists, now communists, who persuaded the Communist Party as a whole, and made Hebrew a subversive language. You might say that precisely because of that, Hebrew became the underground language and the underground cause of people who in the 50s, 60s, and especially in the 70s emerged as Zionists in the USSR. That conflict between Hebrew and Yiddish carried on into the United States, where we had a network of Yiddish schools, which no longer exist, uh, networks of Hebrew-speaking schools. I attended a school where everything in Judaic studies was taught in Hebrew, that school, like every other, practically every other so-called Hebrew-speaking school in the United States, no longer delivers instruction in Hebrew. So uh, there's a great deal to be said about language, politics, and social change. Todd, there were other dimensions to the ongoing debates in the Jewish world about Jewish self-definition beyond language. Can you share some of those dimensions with us and their stakes? Well, the first point would be that one's self-definition as a Jew depended, of course, on how one defined the Jews 
as a group, uh, if one thought of them as a collective body, that is to say, as more than simply a group of people with the same religious views, uh, if one thought of them as a people, an ethnic group, a nation, or a race, uh, then one would take a very kind of collectivist view of the Jewish group, and that would affect one's definition. For example, if one thought that the Jews were simply a group of people bound together by their religious views, that was the, the vision of the uh, reform movement initially, uh, then when t one didn't think uh, that there were any kind of, uh, if you will, collective interests of the Jews. Uh, one wouldn't want Jewish political parties. Uh, one wouldn't want Jews to distinguish themselves in various ways from other people. Uh, on the other hand, let's say in Europe, if one took the view that the Jews constituted a collective group uh, and that they differed from other people not simply by their religion, uh, then one had a very different kind of politics and very different conclusions flowed from that. So there's always a connection. Now, in the case of the Hebraists and the Yiddishists, both of them accepted the fact that Jews had a collective, historical, cultural inheritance that marked them off from other people, whether they were believers or not. But there was always a relationship between politics, as one's Jewish politics, and one's definition of the group as a whole, uh, and, you know, uh, one's sense of understanding of oneself as a Jew. For many Jewish communities in the 20s and 30s, uh, for many of them, uh, they were really uh, pretty far removed uh, from traditional life. And that many of them, uh, many observers saw the real problem, as did Kaplan at the time, as a threat to the Jews not being external threats, threats but internal threats. In other words, to put it kind of colloquially, the Jews were their own worst enemies in the 20s and certainly before 1933. Because this was a period in which uh, Jewish tradition was declining, uh, even in Eastern Europe, certainly in Western and Central Europe and in the United States. Uh, and in places like Germany, for example, in the 1920s and 1930s, German Jewry was already shrinking demographically, because Jews had no longer felt a particular attachment to Jewishness or loyalty to the Jewish people or bonds to the Jewish religion. Uh, Germany had extraordinarily high intermarriage rates and conversion rates. And, as, and what's amazing is that even after the Nazis came to power, Jews in Germany continued to convert in large numbers. Many people have, have, have projected, and it can only be a projection or hypothesized, that had Hitler never come to power, German Jewry was on the road to disappearing anyway. The issue of who and what is a Jew did not arise, in my view, until the late 18th century. Because it's at that point in France and the United States and elsewhere that religion and ethnicity become separated, religion and the state become disaggregated. Historically, the Jews are, if not unique, at least unusual, as an ethno-religious fusion 
like, for example, the Sikhs. And everyone before the late 1700s knew who a Jew was, what a Jew was. Non-Jews knew it, and Jews knew it. And then the state, French and American and others, differentiated between nation and religion. As Todd pointed out, Reform Judaism, originating in Germany and continuing its path in North America, said that Judaism is a religion, Jews are a religious group, and Jewishness is religion without ethnicity. Secularists argued the precise opposite. Jews are an ethnic group, and they don't have anything to do with religion necessarily. So what then makes a Jew if religion is factored out? Well, it's probably culture. And then we get into the debates that we talked about just before. Which culture? Which language? And what do you do with the religious elements of historic Jewish culture if you're not religious? And as Todd has written about extensively, some people, Jews included, believe that Jews were not a religion primarily, were not a ethnic group, but a race. We are still debating those terms 250 years later, and we still have no consensus, neither in the self-proclaimed Jewish state, nor in the Jewish diaspora, on the question of who and what is a Jew. Sui, I'd like to ask you our final question. Give us some sense of aspects of the adversarial position of secularism versus religious religiosity uh, in, in the broader debate or conversation about defining what is Judaism from the period in the book? Unfortunately, and I speak as an Orthodox Jew, more or less, secular Judaism is pretty much dead outside of Israel. Secular Jews used to have a platform which included language, culture, education, the arts, theater, and so on. A network of schools, as I mentioned, in many countries, does no longer exist. There is no secularism today as an ideology, except that among very, very few people. And American Jews particularly are challenged by that because as they drop away from traditional Jewish practice, and as Todd mentioned, this was happening among German Jewry, I might say, I might add that it happened among Hungarian Jews where the rate of intermarriage was going up, where they had abandoned any Jewish language. This has happened in the United States but in a fit of absent-mindedness, without ideology, without substitution. I had the impression after 1967 that a kind of form of civic Jewishness had emerged, 
Jewish community centers, Jewish political activism, Jewish support for Israel. And then, of course, you get the 1990, was it, uh, National Jewish Population Survey, which shocks American Jewry into saying, wow, we're disappearing. And we continue to disappear because, for example, for the 350,000 or so Soviet Jews who've immigrated to the United States, there's no alternative, no viable alternative to religion, whether it be reform, conservative, orthodox, reconstructionist, whatever, to being Jewish. And they are secular. And they would love to be Jewish, most of them. How can they do that in America? At the same time, the divisions within the so-called religious camp um, have been radicalized. So whereas some elements of religious Judaism have become less attached to Torah and mitzvot, others have moved in the opposite direction, especially in Israel, thereby sharpening the tensions not only between religious and non-religious Jews, but especially among religious Jews. The biggest fights are always within the family. So the absence of a viable secular Jewishness is a serious problem in today's world, except in Israel, where you have language, territory, culture, calendar, foods, music, and all the appurtenances of what we would call a nation or an ethnic group. I want to thank Todd Endelman and Svi Gittleman for this far-reaching and incisive and, and important conversation. Thank you so much for your time. It was really a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons Podcast available wherever you listen to your podcasts or at the College Commons website, collegecommons.huc.edu, where you can also stay tuned for future episodes.